LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, are you living deliberately? Henry David Thoreau can show you how. The mass of men, wrote Henry David Thoreau more than 150 years ago, lead lives of quiet desperation. I have been haunted by that line ever since I first read it some 25 years ago. Quiet desperation. What an extraordinary, indelible combination of words. We humans are all too often deeply discontent, this is what I took from Thoreau's line, stuck in a repetitive and unsatisfying daily grind and unable to even articulate our desperation, much less find a way out. To me, Thoreau's words were also a kind of personal challenge that guided my path to some degree. How can I live not quietly, not desperately, but deliberately delighting in every day even if in the process I embarrass my children now and then. And so I was delighted when my producer, Caleb, mentioned a new book by John Cagg and Jonathan Van Bell called Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living, which looks to Thoreau, the great 19th century philosopher, poet, pencil maker, and pontificator, to better understand how we live and work today and how we can build meaningful lives instead of blindly submitting to the frenetic busyness of modern life. That's coming up right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The fall of 2021 was kind of a weird time. After more than a year of mask mandates and social distancing, Zoom classrooms and working from the couch, we were starting to go back to school, back to the office, back to normal. Only a lot of Americans decided they didn't like normal all that much. In America, 2021 has been the year of the Great Resignation. The Labor Department reporting that a record 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September. Across the country, Americans are quitting jobs at record rates. They call it the Great Resignation. Researchers at Harvard Business School noted that the pandemic had given employees, quote, the time and space to think about what really matters to them. A reporter for Vox observed that among the financially stable set, quits were being driven by a greater search for meaning. Beyonce wrote a song about it. Philosopher and writer John Cagg knew exactly what she meant. At the time, he too was reconsidering his relationship with work, a move that in his case was motivated not only by the great resignation, but also by a recent health scare. 
I was going through recovery from bypass surgery. I had had a cardiac arrest at the end of 2020. And it really made me reevaluate the way that I wanted to go about writing and working in the future. And so I called my friend Jonathan Van Bell and I said, I'm not working at all. I don't want to work. I don't want to work in the same way that I have in the past. I need to get some perspective on this. His friend's response took him by surprise. And he said to me, he said, John, you live two miles from Walden Pond. You should go down and spend some time at the pond and we should write a book about Thoreau. Meaning Henry David Thoreau, the original great resigner. The guy who, on July 4th, 1845, walked two miles from his house in Concord, Massachusetts, to the shores of Walden Pond, where he stayed for two years, two months, and two days in the original tiny house, a shingled cabin he built for $28.12 and The better acquainted John became with Thoreau, the more he realized this 19th century naturalist, who was dismissed in his day as a lazy bones, is actually the great rebel critic of the American work ethic. Thoreau is saying to us, quit the rat race, life is too short. What we discovered when we reread Walden and reread Thoreau's journals is that Henry gives us some very, I think, astute guidance on how we are to take up the business of living. I was 21 or 22 when I first read Thoreau's masterpiece, Walden. I had just moved to New York City. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And his words just hit me like a pickaxe. He didn't sound like a man from the past. He sounded like a man very much in the present. I went to the woods, he writes, because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. To live deliberately isn't just about being industrious, because as Thoreau points out, even ants are industrious. To live deliberately, in his view, is to suck out all the marrow of life. And to do that, you have to focus on what really matters. Simplify, simplify, he says. Sell your clothes keep your thoughts. He was well before the school or the trend of mindfulness in the modern day, but he was basically at the cutting edge of it in the 1840s when he went to Walden Pond for his adventure in simple living. John, by the way, took his friend's advice. He did go to Walden Pond when he was not busy teaching at UMass Lowell, and the two of them did write a book about Thoreau. It's called Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living. And it's a brilliant, useful guide to why we work and how we can do it better. So let me ask you, are you living deliberately? Don't worry if your answer's no. This hour, John and I are going to channel Thoreau in order to help you strike a better work-life balance and find meaning in what you do. John Cag, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks so much for having me. 
Give us just a Polaroid snapshot of, of Thoreau, the man. He's born in 1817 in Concord, Massachusetts, which is a town about 20 miles outside of Boston. The first battle of the Revolutionary War was fought there. It's where transcendentalism, uh, the, the philosophical movement spearheaded by Ralph Walder Emerson takes shape. I think it's where you live, John. But just give us a Polaroid snapshot of, of Thoreau. Thoreau grew up working manually. He lost a toe to woodcutting as a boy. He fell off a cow and injured himself as a teenager. He built boats, fixed fences, and helped in uh, the fledgling pencil manufacturing factory that his father spearheaded outside of Concord. Thoreau went to Harvard, but he was always rather disaffected with um, the knowledge that he got. He always commented that the knowledge that you get from experience and from the natural world far exceeds what you learn in any classroom. And he leaves Harvard not really knowing how to make a living or get a job. And during the panic of 1837, he works for several years at a sort of minimum wage. He comments in his journals that he went many weeks working 75 cents a week shoveling manure. And we think about him as the father of American transcendentalism, the father of American letters, Ralph Waldo Emerson being one of his closest friends during this time. But really, Thoreau was a handyman, a sort of um, jack-of-all-trades during this time. And that's something that oftentimes we forget about when we think about Thoreau the environmentalist or Thoreau mm -hmm. the naturalist. He's an interesting person, though, around whom to build a book about work, right? Because I think the popular conception of Thoreau is that of a loafer. This vision we have of him is that he can't get a job, he can't figure out his life, so he just goes into the woods to do nothing. But what's really great about your book, John, is that you discredit that caricature of Thoreau and you show that he was not a, a ne'er-do-well, he was not a good-for-nothing, he was not a layabout. He's actually really capable of prodigious work. He's very industrious, but he's distrustful of the system, the capitalist system he sees springing up around him. He wants to live outside of that system. Am I getting that right? Is that your view of Thoreau, that, that we've gotten him wrong? Very much so. I mean, we think about him as a writer principally, but we oftentimes forget that the real work of Walden was the act of sustaining himself, of growing his own food, of making his own clothes, of providing his own shelter, of being self-reliant in the way that Ralph Waldo Emerson describes in that famous essay, Self-Reliance. But really, Thoreau takes a very practical turn with this. And when you open Walden, you notice that the first chapter is entitled Economy. Hmm. And Thoreau is really interested in the way that our economic lives used to be spent just sustaining ourselves, just supporting ourselves so that we could make our way through human life, through the course of human life. Whereas what he sees in the 1830s and 1840s is the growth of industrial capitalism and the growth of modern consumerism in which the reasons that we work are to achieve the luxuries of life, the large bank accounts of life, the the surplus. And he's deeply suspicious of this sort of hedonic treadmill or this uh, nine to five rat race that really 
is um, geared toward producing more money rather than what he calls the necessaries. I love what you say in the book. You say, this is the abiding message of Walden. The frenetic busyness of modern life should never be confused with the essential business of living. He's really worried about the narrowing of life's possibilities through the economic and through the labor roles that we take on in our lives. And you can really see that today. I mean, a lot of individuals who gave up their job during the pandemic, during the Great Resignation, discovered that they were more than their very narrow or confined nine-to-five work mm-hmm. lives. And that's an insight that I think Thoreau took very seriously. One of the things I learned about him reading your book is that he had many different jobs. I mean, today we might even call him a serial entrepreneur, right? He seemed to think that the best way to work was not to have one job for your whole life necessarily, but to try things, to look at work as an opportunity to learn, to grow, to experiment. Is that his vision of of what a a satisfying work life is? It is. And I will sort of articulate how many different jobs he had. He was a boat builder. He was a fence mender. He was a carpenter. He was an inventor of one of the best pencils at the time in the United States and in Europe. He was a nanny to Emerson's children. He was a teacher at several schools. He was a writer. He was a tutor. And then he was a surveyor. And he was a natural scientist. So He took on many different jobs through his life, and he also knew when to quit certain jobs when they no longer gave him a sense of meaning, or when they erred and deviated from his moral compass. I also think about Thoreau's ignorance compass. There's this great passage in Walden where he's looking at this busy neighbor, and he concludes, quote, He has no time to be anything but a machine. How can he remember well his ignorance, which his growth requires? And I think that's such a profound idea. How can he remember well his ignorance, which his growth requires? I read that as Thoreau saying, your ignorance is your compass, right? Go towards the concepts and the work and the careers that you're ignorant about, but you're curious that you want to learn more about, and you will be rewarded in that pursuit. And I think, uh, honestly, what that passage so nicely captures is thorough interest in acknowledging one's fallibility and the way that one can be wrong, but also the way that that fallibility creates the backdrop for wonder and, as you say, curiosity. And Thoreau was remarkably curious and attuned to wonder. When he says in Walden that we need to be awake to the dawn and we need to learn how to be awake not by artificial means, maybe of like caffeine or other stimulants, but rather intellectually awake to what we don't know and to the dawning of things. This idea is one that underpins his notion of work and meaningful work. So we should move toward those occupations and those callings or vocations that help us grow. And we only grow when we acknowledge that we don't know everything already. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ignorance that Thoreau is mentioning. And that was, I mean, for me, one of the really significant moments in writing this book, because I had been brought up in a central Pennsylvania, fairly conservative, Protestant work ethic household. And I had been told on no uncertain terms that the way to have value 
was to make money and to be driven. And what Thoreau tells us is that maybe we should slow down long enough to evaluate what we don't know, what we want to know, and how to be open to that mystery and um, to grow and to flourish through that experimenting. Uh, Emerson says, I am only an experimenter in all Mm. things. And um, Thoreau, I think, took that seriously. John, have you heard of this thing called the Dark Horse Project at at Harvard, this, this, this research they did there? I have, yeah. Let me tee it up for listeners. So basically, these researchers at Harvard were interested in folks who achieved great success in their careers, not by following a straight line, but by zigging and zagging. And they wanted to know, sir, how do you do that? What are the hallmarks of people who are able to get to the top of a field, but not by taking a straightforward path? And what they found, which is really interesting and I think connects to what you're saying, is that these dark horses, as they call them, have this ability to hit pause and look around and say, here's who I am right now. Here's what I like to do. Here's what I want to learn. Where are the opportunities that can let me do all those things? Let me try that out. If it doesn't work, if I'm bored in a year, if I want to do something different, then I'll pivot. And I think that's a strategy Thoreau would wholeheartedly endorse, right? Who am I? What do I want to learn? Where can I go to get those opportunities? knowing that it may not be setting myself up for a lifetime of pursuing that. It could be a, a short little spell, but I'm going to grow and evolve and emerge better and, and clearer on who I am when I come out the other side. Absolutely. I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson had a literary executor by the name of James Eliot Cabot. And Cabot had a daughter by the name of Ella Lyman Cabot, who became a philosopher in the 19th century. And she has this quote where she says, let me make every chance my chance. In other words, the twists and turns that you experience in life that might be seen as obstacles or unexpected events, let them be your opportunities, chance Mm -hmm. in the sense of opportunity or your possibilities. And I think Thoreau was so attuned to that mentality. He thinks that there is no one way to be a success, that you have to follow what he calls your genius. And that genius can take you in very unexpected directions. It can also mean that for long stretches in your life, to the external world, you look like um, a bit of a crazy person, a bit of a, you know, the person who's moving from one thing to another sort of aimlessly. And I think um, Thoreau following his genius led even his closest friends sometimes to misinterpret his life. For example, when Thoreau dies at the age of 44 from tuberculosis, Ralph Waldo Emerson gives his eulogy and says that he could have been a sort of captain of industry. He was smart enough that he could have really been more industrious, that he could have put his back into it more. But Thoreau played such a vital role in the people that he interacted with in life, but then after life. I mean, if you think about how many people go to Walden to honor this attempt to live deliberately, to follow your own genius, to follow your own conscience, it's it's remarkable. I mean, we do live two miles away from Walden, and I swim there during the summer every mm. every day, basically. 
And there's a pile of rocks that people add to every year. Mm. And the pile is enormous. And you can see how many people Thoreau has touched by his uh, willingness to follow his own conscience. You know, this other thing about following your genius and living deliberately is that your genius can exhaust itself in a way, right? Like I think one of the things that you say in the book and I find to be really inspiring is that Thoreau is, is calling to us to ask, what do you actually produce? Is it a product? Is it a blueprint? Is it an idea? Is it a great student? And is that continuing to satisfy you? And if it's not, you may need to pull up stakes and do something different. You could be the greatest professor of philosophy the, the world has ever seen. But if you are no longer deriving satisfaction, joy, stimulation, pride from that work, it's time to go, to go sow a different field. That's 100% right. And I mean, I think there's two, two aspects that Thoreau is very much aware of that I think defines modern professional life. The first is what economists call the fallacy of sunk costs, mm. which is you invest so much in a particular path, in a particular academic path, or in a particular professional path, that you're then unwilling to change course, and uh, you're unwilling to sacrifice those costs in order to make a new choice. I think the other aspect is what Marx called alienation, or what we take, take away from uh, Karl Marx when he talks about the modern alienation of the industrial system. Mm -hmm. And Thoreau was very much worried that, in his words, we become tools of our tools. Mm. That it's no longer that we direct production, but rather we let the means of production direct our lives. And that we lose touch with the products that actually come out of this system. That we lose touch of what we're actually producing. And in part, we lose the ability to sustain ourselves by hinging our lives or bolting our lives to a system of barter and exchange and a monetary system which really undermines the sense of self-sufficiency and self-reliance that had marked and defined previous generations. Let's talk a little bit more about that idea of becoming a tool of your tool. I love that. Thoreau, great advocate of, of manual work, of the, the power of working with your hands, and also suspicious of technology, of, of what time-saving technology deprives us of. Talk a little bit about that. So Thoreau was not a Luddite. He was a fan of tools and technology. But there is this uh, worry that Thoreau believes that the values of convenience, expediency, and profit are driving all of the other objectives and ideals of human life out of view. And he's worried about that. He's also very concerned about the way that when you have a very efficient tool, mm -hmm. we are inclined as human beings to interpret all of the natural world and all of the, the world of values in terms of that type of efficiency. And so ideals such as beauty and truth and the sublime and wonder, which are not easily monetized and not easily made efficient, sort of fade from view. When we've prioritized through our tools and through the expediencies of our tools, 
a particular value system that seems to be the be-all and end-all. And we take pleasure, I think, from inefficient work sometimes, right? I mean, Thoreau says, shall we forever resign the pleasure of construction to the carpenter? Meaning, sure, there's a professional carpenter who's got better tools and more skills and capability than I do to, you know, frame a house. And yet there's something so pleasurable on a deep level about getting out there and doing that work yourself. I mean, I was thinking as I read that about, you know, should we forever resign the pleasure of writing a beautiful sentence to generative AI, to chat GPT? You know, I think that it's still a a question we should be asking ourselves today. I think so too. And he is encouraging us to just slow down and appreciate the production that we can actually accomplish in life, the beauty that we can take part of in the world. He's telling us to sort of slow down. Now, we oftentimes think about Thoreau and immediately think that he's just romanticizing manual labor and sometimes even romanticizing poverty. But I think Thoreau's desire to take on some of the obligations of being self-reliant and supporting himself was set against the understanding that if you don't take on some of this self-reliant work, then that work falls to others to do, to support Mm -hmm. you. And I think that many individuals miss the fact that his call to simple living is at once a call to the moral life. Coming up after the break, I asked John what Thoreau means when he talks about meaningful work and how you can find it in the year 2023. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the show. At the heart of John Cagg's new book, Henry at Work, is the distinction between meaningless work and meaningful work, between drudgery that sinks your spirit and work that sends you soaring. I asked John, what does meaningful work look like? What are the hallmarks? And how on earth do you find it? I mean, I go back to the initial comment that Thoreau makes at the outset of uh, Walden in chapter two, when he says, I went to the woods to live deliberately so that I don't get to the end of my life and discover that I haven't lived. And I think that that's a um, standard that we should put on our work lives. Mm. Maybe not every day, because every day, you know, there can be hard days at work, but 
every week you should look back and think, is this a week of work that I could endorse on my deathbed? Mm. In other words, is this the type of way that I want to, in Thoreau's words, improve the nick of time, improve the quality of experience in my life? So I think about my life as a teacher. And there were moments, um, and there have been actually months, where I've looked back on the way that I've been teaching and I think, I can't continue this way because I'm going to regret the time that I'm spending. And so I can either adjust my perspective, I can work in a different way, or I can choose to work at another job. So I think that's the very basic idea of meaningful work in a Thoreauvian vein. But I also think that meaningful work needs to be moral work. Mm. So there are certain forms of work where maybe individually you think to yourself, well, this is benefiting my family, this is benefiting my bank account. But if, if it places undue pressure or unjust pressure on individuals around you, either near or distant, I think, again, this is not meaningful work for Thoreau. I kept thinking as I read your chapter on, on meaningful work of the late anthropologist David Graeber, who came up with this more colorful term maybe for meaningful work. He, he wrote about bullshit jobs. And for Graeber, a bullshit job is a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence. And that sounds terrible, and yet we are surrounded by bullshit jobs. I think a lot of listeners of the show probably work a bullshit job, and many of them are well-paid, they're prestigious, but you're not adding necessarily to society, you are not improving a lot of others. And I think Graeber's key insight is that bullshit jobs, the advent of the bullshit job, this modern thing, is really a misguided reaction to the rise of automation. That this same sort of technological displacement that Thoreau in his time was concerned about, Graeber says when we were confronted with that in the, in the 20th century, we thought it was going to lead to mass unemployment. And so what did we do? We created a bunch of empty, meaningless, dummy jobs just to fill people's time. I have two questions for you on this. I know that was a little bit of a rant about Graeber, but I have two questions for you about this. First is, do you think Thoreau saw this coming? And second, do you, John Cag, think that this rise that we're maybe seeing of meaningless work, of bullshit jobs, is this going to get worse? I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about artificial intelligence, what that means for the future of work, for the future of humanity. Are we going to all be working bullshit jobs in a couple of years because AI will have just run wild and yet we can't bring ourselves to untether, unleash from, from this need to, to fill our hours? Well, the first question, did Thoreau see this coming? A hundred percent. Thoreau was so worried about the sort of way that we can sort of just sleepwalk our way mm -hmm. through our modern life and the way that our jobs allow us to sleepwalk our way through modern life. Mm -hmm. So Thoreau is very much worried about the, the sort of bullshit job. Now, do, you said, do, do you, John Kegg, think that this is going to get worse or better? I'm actually slightly optimistic because it's gotten so bad. And let me okay. explain. What I've seen during the pandemic 
is my students actually craving meaningful work and becoming less and less interested in lucrative jobs and turning more and more to what Thoreau might call meaningful jobs. Mm. And this might mean that they live at home, that they might live with others communally as Thoreau did for his entire life. Thoreau only at uh, Walden Pond lived alone. And um, what my students, I think, are seeing is that life lived simply can be life lived meaningfully and enjoyably. Mm. And that sort of turn, I think, was brought about by the pandemic, but I think it's also precipitated by the rise and the sort of discussion of automaticity and AI and chat GPT in the sense that there has to be something else to living other than pre-programmed or virtual life, that there has to be something real that Uh, you can sink your teeth in or that you can immerse yourself in, that you can experience. And I think that that is a belief that I've seen ignite in many of my students in the last year and a half or two years. But you can't escape drudgery entirely. You know, I mean, you were talking about your own career. You said there were moments or months even where you really question if this work was continuing to be meaningful to you. Drudgery and struggle, strife, it's it's all around us. And every day you have to do the dishes and take out the trash and parent the kids and pay your taxes. What advice would Thoreau give us to know if the scales have just tipped too far in the drudgery, meaningless direction? I'm reminded of David Foster Wallace's comment in This Is Water when he says that the task of adult life is to get to 30 or 40 or 50 without wanting to put a gun to your head. Because adult life is more and more and more boring. Mm. Like it's not going to get better from here, I say to my students, like when it comes to boredom. And Thoreau, I think, is uh, would respond in two ways. One is that there are ways where you can minimize the drudgery of your life. A lot of that drudgery is a function of what we regard as um, necessary in our lives. Are we pursuing luxuries? Do I have to wash my multiple cars because I've bought multiple cars? (laughs) And that sort of realization that, oh, if I don't have quite as much, then maybe my the, the actions that I can take in life might be different. So you can eliminate some drudgery by simplifying life. The drudgery that you can't eliminate, for example, um, let's just talk about the, the act of raising children, can actually be made less plodding by adjusting your angle of vision, I think. So many parents, especially during the summer months, realize that when the kids are off school, it's tough. Like you have to do a lot of kid-related stuff that maybe you find sort of boring. But Thoreau somehow managed to maintain his childlike demeanor in raising kids. I mean, when he spent time with Emerson's kids, when he nannied them and lived in Emerson's house when Emerson went abroad, he was seen doing the most absurd, but also the most joyful activities like 
rolling around on the ground like animals and showing the kids how to do it and just being playful in ways that at least have reminded me as a parent that it's still possible to change your perspective on the tasks of raising kids and that kids are most beautiful when they are just kids and not when they're just little mini adults. There will be plenty of time for them to be mini adults later in life. And um, Thoreau encouraged us in work life and also in the, the tasks of household life to actually think about what the experience of it is and to see if we might enjoy it and see if we might get something out of it that we oftentimes neglect. Another idea that is, is key to your book, key to Thoreau, key to understanding our work is this concept of compensation. And you have a really interesting take on this, which is that I think we, we tend to think of compensation as, well, that is what we are paid for the work that we do, for the labor that we do. You say by way of Thoreau that compensation is also compensating us for what work deprives us of, for what we are not able to do because we are working. It's paying us off. It's bribing us to keep working in a way. Tell me a little bit more about that vision of compensation. I think that's one of the most interesting things in this book. So Thoreau believes that the most important commodity of life is time, Mm. that it is incredibly precious, the time that we have, and unusually short. I mean, this from a man who suffered through ill health for much of his life and died at 44. Um, So the, the impetus to improve the experiences that we have in life and to improve the time and the way that we spend time um, is on Thoreau's mind continually. And Jonathan and I make the point in the book that what our employers oftentimes are paying us for is basically for us to face the opportunity costs of investing in one particular form of work rather than in other activity. So oftentimes people have come to me and said, I'm going to take the day off because I need to you know, recharge my batteries. I want to go swimming instead. I want to go fishing instead. I want to go climb a tree instead or spend time with the kids. And that is always the case with our work lives. We could always be spending our time differently. Mm-hmm. It's about the choices that we make. And our employers, at least in part, are paying us for that time so that we continue to make the choice in spending our time in one way rather than another. And I think that that's oftentimes missed when we just think that we're getting paid to accomplish a particular task for a particular type of company. It's actually an existential cost, the cost to you as a person uh, that they're paying you off for. And if we hold that position in mind, we might think about the time we spend at work a little differently. For Thoreau, a good job doesn't just compensate you properly. It invites you to do the kind of work that makes you feel fitted to the universe. John explains what that means right after the break. Would you like to access a summary of a groundbreaking new book every single weekday created by the authors themselves in 12 minutes of audio or four minutes of text? How about beautiful video and audio e-courses? 
Did I mention ad-free versions of this podcast? You're probably thinking, don't tease me, Rufus. Such a thing could not possibly exist. Well, I am not teasing, folks. You can find all those things and more in the next Big Idea app. Just go to your app store. You can do this right now. Just pause this recording, click on the app store, and search for Next Big Idea. If you enjoy this podcast, you will love the app. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. You know, near the end of the book, you write, when you work meaningfully, you are performing a task that the universe has reserved for just you. I think that's a really profound idea. It also seems like an incredibly high bar. Performing a task that the universe has reserved just for you. First of all, I think that opens the door for a lot of folks to feel like, geez, I don't think that being a dog walker or a lawyer or a podcaster is really the task the universe has reserved for me. So square that. How do we have that sort of lofty ambition of what meaning means in the working world with, you know, the, the needs to, to feed our family, to have lives outside of our work? So Thoreau and Emerson would observe that in our work lives, there are better and worse days. Mm-hmm. And those better and worse days are not just measured by accomplishment or money, but by the experience that you have at work. For you, there's probably better and worse podcasts that you have done. For me, there are better and worse classes that I have um, led or been part of. And you can feel it in your bones when everything just sort of aligns in a way where you feel like, oh, I just nailed it. I just fit myself to maybe you're a dog walker and all of a sudden a rather unruly dog is suddenly well-behaved because of something that you've done. And you think to yourself, ah, I did that. That's the type of fittedness that I think Thoreau wants us to be attuned to when he says that we should try to work in such a way that we feel like the universe just fits us right. Yeah. And if you don't have those feelings at your work on a routine basis, then Thoreau would say it would be best to find another course of action. Maybe you're forced to stay at that job and Thoreau would have a problem with that system of injustice. But Thoreau would say, ideally, you can um, find, find a situation where you feel like you're well-fitted to the task at hand. I love this line of Thoreau's. He says in his journal, the best you can write will be the best that you are. And I think that's a beautiful formula, heuristic, whatever you want to call it, for thinking about our working lives. And in the book, you expand on that. It's not just about being a writer. You know, the best you can paint, the best you can teach, the best you can parent, the best you can dog walk can be the best that you are. Just fill out that notion for us of of how that's something we can chase, this idea of our best work calling our best selves online. I love that expression by Thoreau, and it doesn't just apply to writing. It applies to all of our work. Like We forget so easily that we spend as adults the vast majority of our time working. Mm-hmm. And, and we think about this, this ideal of free time as all the time that we don't work, and that's where we are truly ourselves. But if that's the case, we really run a very serious risk. And the risk is this, that we spend most of our lives 
feeling like we are constrained, that we are locked in, that we're doing something that we would rather not do. And what Thoreau is pointing out, he's saying, take your job and your vocation as the opportunity to be the best that you can be by exercising your powers and your sensitivities in such a way where you look back on those days, your work days, and you say, ah, that too was my free time. That too was, I was doing something unique and meaningful and powerful and effective. And I think we can be called to look at other people that way too. You know, I have, I remember years ago watching maybe the high dive or something in the Olympics with, with my dad. And we were just riveted. We couldn't, we couldn't peel our eyes away. We'd never seen a high dive competition before. And yet we were fascinated and rooting for certain people against others. And I turned to him and I said, why do you think we are so into this? And he said, you know, it's really fun to watch another person be great at something. And I think if you take that view and and carry it as you walk around, it is really fun to see a bus driver who is just phenomenal at at being a bus driver, to see the person making your sandwich, just just give it a little bit of flair and love and attention and make it fantastic. A teacher who really is just being the best they can be at that, it calls you to relish and to celebrate people around you, I think. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote Henry at Work the way that we did, which includes these vignettes from, from the workers that we encounter in everyday life. And there are those workers that we've either interviewed or just witnessed that are deeply inspiring. I mean, Thoreau's uh, one-time home, when he was at Harvard, he lived at what is now a, um inn, the Colonial Inn, which is in Concord. And one waiter in particular at the Colonial Inn, his name's Lawrence, just does a phenomenal job. Hmm. And you just watch him and it's like, I mean, his life is more than just being a waiter or being a bartender, but he also has picked a job that he is so perfect at. And if I could be as good of a teacher as he is of a bartender or a waiter, that would be an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that the reason that we take this more personal or anecdotal approach to Henry at work is to look around for inspiration in contemporary work for those laborers who don't seem to be working at all, but actually seem to be playing at their work, but incredibly effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think to go back to your earlier comment about the dark horse, the dark horse oftentimes is that individual who actually does enjoy what they're doing because they take a non-traditional approach, mm-hmm. um, because they take an unusual, what from the outward perspective might look like an unusual way ahead. Well, it's been 200 years since Thoreau's birth, and I think his vision is is pretty alive and well with us today, thanks in part to your book. But... You know, I was just a few nights ago camping in South Dakota and got to talking to these people who had set up their camp near us. And they had one of these tricked out little sprinter vans 
And they were like, this is our tiny house. This is where we live. We're a digital nomads, so we can work wherever we want. This thing's fitted with Wi-Fi. And we're driving around the country. We are spending as much time outdoors as we can all day. We're sort of working in little drips and drabs throughout the day. And it was a beautiful Thoreauvian moment. And I think that there's lots of people out there who are questioning what work means, what role it should play in our lives, how we can balance it with other pursuits. So he really just does feel that his work feels as present and vital as ever, I think. I know a couple who has a very young child, two years old, who live in a Sprinter van, and they do exactly what you said. They went through the pandemic and they thought, I would rather be on the move with my family experiencing the world, the natural world, the national parks, and not have a brick and mortar home. And when you asked earlier, you said, do you think that we're going to live more bullshit jobs or less bullshit jobs, you know, fewer bullshit jobs? The sprinter vans and the army of sprinter vans and the increase in sprinter van households, I think indicates a desire to live uh, lives without bullshit labor. And to live deliberately on the open road. And I think that's been the call to arms, call to action in this conversation, to live deliberately. I think you're doing it, John, with your fantastic books. And you've inspired me to try to be a little bit more deliberate in my living as well. Thank you so much for this conversation. I would like to buy a drink at the Colonial Inn next time I am in Concord. It's been really wonderful to talk to you and and to channel Henry David Thoreau this morning. Anytime, Caleb. Thanks so much for your work. John Cagg is a professor of philosophy at University of Massachusetts Lowell and author of the books Hiking with Nietzsche, Six Souls, Healthy Minds, and most recently, Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living, which he co-wrote with Jonathan Van Bell. You can and should buy those books wherever fine books are sold. It's a shame that Henry David Thoreau isn't still with us because I think he really would have loved using the Next Big Idea app. We have invited hundreds of the world's biggest thinkers to record summaries of their books, which you can listen to or read by downloading the Next Big Idea app in your app store. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Kayla Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Our executive producer is Rufus Griscom. The folks at the LinkedIn Podcast Network help us live deliberately by letting us make this show. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 